Today I'm going to talk about, actually, I originally said the talk was going to be what is sex, but I decided instead the title Sex and Science Fiction. And uh, I actually, I don't usually write out my talks, but I was a little uneasy about what I was going to say. So I, I wrote out a lot of my talks. And you can actually, uh, when you get home and you want to see what, what I said, you can go online and uh, most of my talk is online at uh, on my blog, which is rudyrucker.com slash blog. And uh, so pretty much most of what I'm reading is going to be, you can find it on the blog as well. Um, let's leave these guys on for now, though. I think it's sort of boring if somebody actually projects an image of their talk while they're reading it to you. It, somehow that, that doesn't seem to work. Um, science fiction is a mountain of metaphors, a fun house of crooked mirrors that give us new views of our actual world. From our genes' point of view, we're meat-based land crawlers to ride around in. I think of little double helices lounging in the hammocks of my cells. What makes us especially useful is that now and then we spawn off new land crawlers with copies of the passenger genes carrying them ever forward through time. We're really like generation starships that the genes live inside. And they, uh, they sort of encourage us to behave in certain ways, and one of the main things they want us to do is to reproduce. If living organisms weren't obsessed with sex, uh, we wouldn't be here. If you think about it, each of us is a link in a chain of generations. We're like dangling dollies on a slimy macrame of a trillion umbilical cords. When you look at those Russian dolls, always ima always imagine what if an umbilical cord connected each one to the one before. And it's uh, that's if we weren't obsessed with sex, we wouldn't be here. Uh, of course, we enjoy sex for more immediate reasons than reproduction, um, erotic pleasure, the orgasm, and partnership bonding. The last one, I think, is important. That's why the other expression that we have for sex is making love. We're wired so that love grows from the sex act. If reproduction were the only reason for sex, you wouldn't be having so many orgasms. How many? Math time. Suppose you live to your 80s and that you have 70 years of sexual activity, which makes for about 3,500 weeks. If you're energetic enough to average three pops a week for 70 years, you're talking about something like 10,000 orgasms in your lifetime. All that brain flashing to bring forth at most a couple of kids. Ooh, mommy. You mean you and Daddy did that twice? So how about science fiction and sex? Uh, where have we been, where are we headed, and how much further can we go? One sex story I always think of is Samuel Delaney's I and Gomorrah. It's about a cadre of spacers who've been surgically altered, or really, I guess it's genetically altered, so that their crotches are as featureless as a plastic Barbie dolls, maybe with just this tiny little hole where they did the casting. Uh, why did they do that to these spacers? 
Well, because of the amount of mutating radiation that the astronauts absorb in their space stations, it would be too dangerous to allow any possibility of them reproducing. Now, what makes the story cool is that there's people who are sexually obsessed with these Barbie smooth crotch spacers. And Delaney makes up a great word for these fetishists, calls them frelks, F-R-E-L-K. I've always liked that word. It's sort of like friendly and, I don't know, elk, frelk. So, um, in this context, uh, I think of a kind of related story about people being sexually attracted to aliens. And I think the title of the story is And I Awoke and Found Me Here on the Cold Hills Side. And it's written by Alice Sheldon, one of the great woman science fiction writers. And actually she used to write under a man's name, James Tiptree Jr. I think, uh, I'm not exactly sure why she did that. Maybe she felt it would be easier to get published or she wouldn't be typecast. Uh, there's a famous essay by uh, Robert Silverberg where he's arguing that, of course, James Tiptree is a man. I'm going to turn this off. That flashing is bothering me. Um, upon seeing aliens in this story, the characters have this overwhelming sense of lust. And uh, it sort of makes me think of how some of us react, like when you go to the Castro Street Halloween Parade. I mean, you, you didn't realize you were so attracted to these six-foot-tall, honking, loud brides, these, these guys in bride dresses. So uh, it's the otherness. One reason they're attracted to sex with other people is because they're different. Gender isn't necessarily an issue. That's, I think, one of the core ideas in both the Delaney and the Sheldon stories. They're attracted to the people with nothing in their crotches, or they're attracted to the the cockroaches or the, uh, the squid. Otherness is a turn-on. Now here, uh, science fiction, a lot of times, it's about our real world, but it's just we're sort of, oh, letting science fictional things stand in for real world things. And if you think about it, any other human being is for all practical purposes an alien because they're so completely different from you. They live inside a different skin. They have different memories. They, uh, they're totally different from you on the inside. So when science fiction writers write about having sex with aliens, in a way they're just dialing up uh, the strangeness of having sex with another human being. It's not just the difference that turns us on, uh, because you don't so much want to have sex with objects or with animals. It's the idea that there's an intelligent mind inside the different body. Another mind that mirrors you, a mind that you can, in fact, pair up with for an endless regress of mutual reflections. Now, another topic I want to mention here is that there's a big difference between uh, sex with a person individually, directly, and sex that's uh, going through the media in some fashion or another. In sex with a person, you're talking about emotion, the, uh, the positions of your limbs, physical touch across large skin areas, tastes, scents, and pheromones. You might want to put a candle by the bed, but you don't have to. You can just as easily make love in the dark. In media-based sex, uh, we're reduced to visual images that are possibly enhanced by recorded sounds. There's not really any emotion, any touch, any tastes, any smells. 
And text-based sex is even more abstract. Um, I'm sort of sorry to see the decline of text-based pornography. It used to be that every corner store would have these little books with strange... The covers would always be monochrome, some strange color, like sort of beige or sort of bluish, bluish red. But you, you don't, you hardly see books like that anymore. Though you can, you can certainly find this huge repositories of written pornography online. Uh, in the 1970s, I had this friend. He was sort of a barfly, and he would brag. Uh, this was when I lived in upstate New York, and he worked in an office of a porno place in downtown Rochester, and he was paid by the hour to write. It's, uh, it's not like, not even by the words, they wanted him there in the office, you know, from whatever, nine to five writing. And uh, I thought he was cool. He was uh, the first professional writer I met. <laughs> this guy had it together. Uh, still on the, coming back to the theme of sex with aliens a little bit, my novel, The Sex Sphere, features a giant ass from the fourth dimension. I read a little bit from that novel last night. And uh, this, this giant sphere is called Babs, and she has eyes, breasts, a mouth, a vagina, but no limbs. Um, but she's powerful. She doesn't really need the limbs. She can fly. She's into nuclear terrorism. And her ultimate goal is to utterly destroy our universe. Maybe some of you have dated her. <laughs> the book is being reissued this fall by E-Reads. One of the earliest bizarre science fiction sex stories that I read was in Philip Jose Farmer's 1950s anthology, Strange Relations. And there's this story, it actually came out in Thrilling Wander Tales in 1953. And really, it's, it's more strange than any story that, that I would see coming out now, 50 years later. It's kind of amazing. It's the story Mother. And there's this stranded space explorer, and he finds shelter within... Uh, this thing, it's sort of a plant. It's kind of like a puffball, a big round thing. And he gets inside there. There's this cavity there. And the plant, or in a way, maybe it's an animal. It feeds him food, uh, makes stew for him, and it makes bourbon for him. He's a, an alcoholic, like many Pulp Fiction characters. And uh, she nurses him along. And it turns out that what she wants from the astronaut is for him to attack this certain area on the on her wall, this sort of bulging area. And if he'll like claw and, 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 and gnaw at it and beat on it, it will catalyze her into a pregnancy, enabling her to bear young. And so he does the attack, and then reflexively she's about to push him down her esophagus to chew him up. That's normally she eats eats her captives after sex. In a way, it's an incest story. I mean, it, it is called Mother, and that's what the astronaut calls this plant. But uh, in another way, it's also about living in a cocoon. And there, you see a certain number of cocoon science fiction stories. And uh, the cocoon, it sort of is a symbol. It's like a person that's alone with their computer. And they're maybe viewing internet porno, having sex talks in chat rooms. Maybe they're playing erotic roles in multiple user video games. And that's their, their life. They're alone in this box relating to this, this, this screen. And another science fiction version of the same idea is the thing in The Matrix, where we have people that are sort of in these jelly-like pods and their brains are plugged into a group virtual reality. 
One thing that bothered me a lot about the Matrix was they claimed that they were using these people for batteries. They were getting, getting electricity from them, which, if you think about it at all, it's, it's going to use more energy to keep a person alive in a pod than you're going to be getting out of their body. It's, it's, it's not really complicated science to, to perceive that, but whatever. It made, a, it made a great visual. And it's, the thing is, it resonates because that's sort of what it feels like sometimes if you're alone with your computer and you're talking to lots of other people that are alone with the computer and you're together in some indeterminate space. Sometimes we call it cyberspace, the internet, the web. And uh, that's this kind of virtual reality that you're generating together. Um, these scenarios, in a way, I think they're sad. Uh, in Mother, the character at least has the ability to uh, impregnate the blob. He can sort of claw at it and she gets pregnant. But what can you as an individual do to the Internet? What can you do to some vast virtual reality that you're duped into spending all your time with? Um, well, at least in the case of the Internet, you can do a little bit. You can post comments. You can upload videos, start a photo stream, run a blog. Uh, that's the internet in many ways turned out better than really anybody would have hoped. You, you would have kind of thought that some big company would own it or the government and people wouldn't be able to post whatever they wanted to. It's sort of amazing that it turned out the way it did. Uh, so it's this sort of publishing system where anybody can publish. But still, you're alone in your room. So if you're lucky, you can post something that will actually galvanize another human being into meeting you face to face and maybe even having sex with you. It's always boring, important to remember that computers are dead and boring compared to fellow humans. Even if there's a human on the other side of the computer output that you're interacting with, the machine is still between you. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, it's, it's almost like you're in a bathroom and there's this wall between you and at most you have a, a glory hole in it, okay? But uh, you're sort of cut off. For a little while, people were talking about having sex via the Internet by means of computer-operated sex toys. And probably some of the other speakers will talk about that today. My sense is that it's doable, but who wants to bother? It's really the skin that matters, the breath, the human eyes, the emotion, the voice. It's, uh, that's what you're really looking for, is uh, personal, personal contact. As a partial improvement, though, as a science fiction writer, I do like to think about the possibility of remote sex. In my novel, Freeware, I had sex toys that were made of this flexible and intelligent plastic that could move on its own. The stuff was, uh, I called it piezoplastic, and it had become uh, intelligent due to a wetware mold infection. And I think there was this one sort of blanket that this young guy, Randy Carl Tucker, spent a lot of time playing with, and her name was Angelica, with a K. And then uh, his minister had a, a talking dildo. His name was Dr. Jerry Falwell. <laughs> so it, uh, he, he, left the, he left the church rather than get up close and personal with Dr. Falwell. Uh, bigger chunks of this fungus-dosed piezoplastic are... Uh, they actually, in my, this is a series of books I wrote, the wares, software, wetware, freeware, and realware. And particularly in freeware and realware, 
these there's these creatures they're called moldies and they're shaped more or less like humans but they're made of this plastic that has this rich veins of uh, fungus sort of like blue cheese and they smell sort of strange the people that become sexually involved with them are called cheese balls and it's risky hanging out with a moldy because what they like to do is stick a finger up your um, up your nose and get a break off a little chunk of what they call a sluggy that then lives inside your brain and becomes sort of a oh kind of like a modem or a remote or a wireless antenna and then the the moldy is able to control what you do and again in science fiction we think we're making these things up but really we're just describing ordinary reality this uh, this sort of thing that, that your sex partner gets into your head, that's, that's sort of just like a sexual obsession that they use to take control of you. Um, as an SF writer, I do wonder if there could be a non-plastic and purely biological medium for remote sex. I mean, it would be nicer if the sex toy were made of human tissue culture instead of plastic. And ideally, the seed cells for the tissues would come from your lover's body, so the smells and pheromones are just right. Uh, actually, Bruce Sterling and I wrote a story about some things like this. And uh, in that story, we called them pumpties. He, at that time, was obsessed with Pokemons, which I find totally lame and boring. But uh, he had some children who were that age, so they were like putting Pokemon in his face all the time. So, you know, he picked up on it. And so these things, they're the little, little kind of balls that were grown from your own tissue, and you could, uh, in a way, again, it's a little bit like having a baby, but it's, it's more just like this flexible little thing. Now, uh, so you give your partner one of these pumpties of you, and she gives you, or he gives you one of his or her pumpties. And uh, for the full satisfaction, if we're going to be doing remote sex via pumpties, you want a way to project your mind into that, that remote one that your darling is going to uh, use and vice versa. So, um, well, in science fiction, we never have a problem with something as easy as telepathy. We just, everything works in science fiction. That's one of the nice things, unlike computer science or mathematics. Uh, it just always works right away, right out of the box. So we use quantum entanglement to... So your partner's getting it on with your pumpty and you're diddling uh, the pumpty that he or she gave you and you're projecting your consciousness into the remote pumpty and into your partner's mind as well. So good, we've got some nice remote sex happening. But, you know, this doesn't sound all that different from phone sex or, pardon the expression, love letters, if any of you remember those. Uh I think remote sex is its sort of a boring idea. I, th I think there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. Uh, so I think another science fiction angle on sex that we might think about would be ways to actually amplify in-person sexual encounters by some kind of science fictional means. Uh, one idea I had in my Ware novels, there was a drug called Merge, and lovers would get into a bathtub called a love puddle. And they splash on the merge, and their bodies would melt and flow together, making this glob of flesh with four eyes on top. And the, all the, all this, 
the flesh kind of swirled together, sort of like a a white and rye loaf of bread, a black and white loaf of bread. And uh, after an hour or so, the merge wears off and the couple's body shapes return. Though maybe uh, you can still leave your hands merged together for a little while. So you walk down the street and people know that you've really been getting it on. Uh, Another kind of uh, sexual enhancement that we could have science fictionally is telepathy. Uh, I already mentioned it's exciting to have your own mind mirrored in someone else's, even as you're mirroring them and so on forever. Suppose the mirroring is really through a direct brain contact. And uh, cables are sort of retro, so we might as well just suppose it's some sort of wireless field that you have connecting your two minds. It's easy to suppose the feedback could flip into a chaotic mode, uh, generating fractal strange attractors. It would take some delicate maneuvering to avoid spiraling into the fixed-point attractor of a brain seizure. Here's a passage about this that's drawn from my novels uh, Saucer Wisdom and Hylozoic. And so this is about a couple called Larky and Lucy, and they're, uh, they've got a telepathic contact working between them. At first it's mellow. Larky and Lucy lie there side by side on the floor, smiling up at the ceiling, thinking colors and simple shapes. Blue sky, yellow circle, red triangle. Now Larky puts his hand in front of his face, stares at it, and the image goes over to Lucy. But Lucy isn't able to see the hand yet. She can't assimilate the signal. You try and send a picture to me, says Larky. He doesn't say the words out loud. Instead, he imagines saying them. He sub-vocalizes them, as it were, and Lucy is able to hear them. Words are easier than pictures. Lucy stares at her piezoplastic bracelet, fixating on it, sending the image out. Larky can't get it at first, but then after a minute's effort, he can. You have to let your eyes like sag out of focus and then turn them inside out only without physically turning them, you wave, explains Larky, none too clearly. It's sort of like the trick you do in order to see your eyes floaters against the sky. You're looking far away, but you're looking inside your head. So now Larky and Lucy can see through each other's eyes, but then Larky glances over at Lucy and she looks at him and they get into a feedback loop of mutually regressing awareness that becomes increasingly unpleasant. It's kind of like the way if you stare at someone and they stare back at you, then you can read what they think of you in their face and they can read your reaction to that and you could read their reaction to your reaction and so on. It gets more and more intense and pretty soon you can't stand it and you look away. But with a direct brainwave hookup, the feedback is way stronger. In fact, it's like what happens when you point a video camera at a TV monitoring what the camera sees. Lucy's view of Larky's face forms in Larky's mind, gets overlaid with Larky's view of Lucy and bounced back, and then it bounces back again, bounce, 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 back and forth, twisting into ragged squeals. Lucy and Larky start to tremble, right on the point of getting into some kind of savage, epileptic-like fit, but Larky does a head trick that makes it stop. Larky's method for stopping the feedback is like one of the things you can do with a video camera to keep the TV screen from getting all white. You zoom in on a detail. You find a fractal feather and amplify just that. In the same way, Larky shifts his attention to a tiny little part of his smeared out mouth, a little nick at the corner, and as soon as that starts to amp up, he shifts over to a piece of Lucy's cheek 
and just keeps skating and staying ahead of the avalanche. Lucy gets the hang of it too, and now they're darting around their shared visual space. Larky and Lucy slowly develop a language for transmitted emotions. Part of the trick is to keep a low affect, to speak softly, as it were. If you scream a feeling, it bounces back at you and starts a feedback loop. You can think a scream, but you have to do it in a calm, low-key way. The way Lucy puts it, just go, I'm all boo-hoo, instead of actually slobber-sobbing. So pretty soon, Larky and Lucy are good at sending the emotions in that gentle, chilled-out kind of way. Not everyone can remember to stay chilled out and to not stare into the feedback. The other big hurdle is to make the signals readily comprehensible. Larky and Lucy are able to communicate quite easily because they knew each other really well. They're lovers and best friends. But what happens when you try and link with a relative stranger? None of his or her references and associations make sense. The trick turns out to be first to first exchange copies of uh, what you might call your life, back, life box context, which what we would now call a web page or a Facebook page. It's this computer database of all the things that you know about yourself, that you've written about yourself. And then the other person assimilates that, and it's like they're able to understand what you're talking about. So as well as using analog signals from the super quantum brain sensors, you can use hyperlinks into the other user's context. The combination gives the effect of telepathy. Some couples become addicted to the dangerous intensity of skirting around the white hole of feedback, of bopping around right on the fractal edges of overamplification, on the verge of tobogganing towards the point attractor of a cerebral seizure. Fortunately, you can always shut off your telepathy. With practice, Larky and Lucy had learned to skate around the singular zones, enjoying the bright, ragged layers. So that's, I, I see a real future in that. Uh, really, one of the great pleasures of sex is getting close to somebody. So it seems like using telepathy to get closer would make it that much more intense. Uh, though, as I say, there's a certain danger there of losing it in the feedback. Another, uh, coming back to one of the things I mentioned right at the beginning, the notion of sex as being... Uh, for reproduction, what uh, a science fiction thing I've thought about is what if you're producing something more than just a child? In a couple of my novels, I've had couples who somehow save our universe as a kind of side effect of their lovemaking, sort of like Father Sky and Mother Earth. It's an old legend that expresses something fundamental. Uh, in a lot of the, the creation myths, uh, Unfortunately, not in the Judeo-Christian creation myth, but in most other cultures, the creation myth involves sex. You have uh, the two gods make love and give birth to the world, which sort of makes more sense than God as being this computer programmer, this, this just just this guy with a beard, some fucking geek. Okay, so, and. Uh, now here's a version of sort of creation via sex from my early novel, Space Time Donuts. That was my first novel. And it's right at the very end of the book. And right at the end, everything has gotten really screwed up. And it's one of these branching universe kind of things. And uh, 
the main hero and his his girlfriend are making love and they're trying to find their way into a good world. He was floating a pattern of possibilities in an endless sea of particulars. Be the sea and see me be. The words formed somewhere. Be the sea and see me be. He let his shape loosen and drift to touch every part of the sea around them, a peaceful ocean like a bay at slack tide on a moonless summer night, peaceful, while in the depths, desperate lives played out in all the ways there are. Taking all together, the lives added up to a messageless phosphorescence, a white glow of every frequency. And are you here? As long as you are. Can we go further? Now. And that's actually how that book ends. Uh, and this is another scene along these lines in my more recent novel, Post Singular. If uh, you're too cheap to buy one of my books, you can actually read Post Singular for free online if you go to rudyrucker.com slash postsingular. Cory Doctorow talked me into this idea of putting a novel up as a Creative Commons book so that everybody can read it for free. And Corey does that, and he sells a lot more copies than me. And I did it, and I sold just the same number of copies as usual. So, I don't know. Maybe I should be blogging on Boing Boing. Uh, so, uh, here's the, this, this sort of sex-creating-the-universe scene in post-singular. It's not actually the universe that they're creating. They're trying to find this, uh, this thing called the lost cord that's going to unfurl the eighth dimension and... Uh, give intelligence to every object on earth. They undressed and began making love. They had all the time in the world. Everything was going to be all right. At least that's what J.J. kept telling himself. And somehow he believed it. He and Twee were one flesh, all their thoughts upon their skins. Their bodies made a sweet suck and push. The answer was before them like a triangular window. J.J. had been too tense and rushed to teep the harp before, but now, now he could feel the harp's mind. She was a higher order of being, incalculably old and strange. She knew the lost chord. She was ready to teach it to him. J.J. and Twee melted into their climax. They kissed and cuddled. J.J. got up naked and fingered the harp's strings. They didn't hurt his fingers one bit. The soft notes layered upon each other like sheets of water on a beach with breaking waves. Guided by the harp, J.J. plinked in a few additions, thus and so. And yes, there it was, the lost chord. Space twitched like a sprouting seed. And with that, the harp was gone. No matter. The sound of the lost chord continued unabated, building on itself like a chain reaction vibrating the space around them, J.J. smiled at Twee. He had a sense of endlessly opening vistas. You did it, said Twee. You're wonderful. She wasn't talking out loud. Her warm voice was inside his head. True telepathy. J.J. had unrolled the eighth dimension. He and Twee had saved the world. Sex is everything. So that's the end of my prepared remarks. Uh, I think we still have a little time. So uh, if somebody has some question or remark on something I said, I'd be happy to say a little bit more. Yeah, any, any questions? I often have this ex effect on audiences. <laughs>
It's, proven, it's, it's like this wrong. UFO drops this, this fat, crazy book in Egyptian hieroglyphs, and then <laughs> that's my talk. So your talk centered a lot on um, sex and this evolution of intimacy. What about sex in the other direction where it's not about intimacy at all, but this sci if science fiction was going to uh, describe sex just as a, a physical act without any telepathy or emotion? Is, is there a... So you're sort of saying, what can science fiction do talking about sex just as it is? Well, I guess the whole telepathy part is this kind of hyper-intimacy uh -huh. sex, but I don't think sex is always necessarily intimate. Yes. So. Okay, yeah. Then we get into the, the thing. There's uh, sex without love, <laughs> uh, sex without intimacy. There's... Uh, well, one, you can get into the thing of, uh, like, nerve stimulation, where you can have, like, uh, sometimes you'll have, oh, like, you can put an electrode in a rat's brain, and every time he presses a, a lever, he gets an orgasm. And uh, you could, you can, there's, there's been science fiction where people could do things like that to each other. And uh, I'm not thinking of anything really great along those lines, though. Um, you could view sex as a weapon where somebody can't do something because they're, they're too distracted by sex. You've got like this sex ray. That's, sometimes you'll see that in science fiction movies, the sex ray, where you shine it on people and they just lose it because they're, you know, they're too obsessed with it. Or uh, another thing that I really didn't get into, but that... If you search online for sex and science fiction, there'll be a lot of uh, uh, books about gender politics, or you'll have worlds with only women or worlds with only men. And that's uh, another... Science fiction is a house with many mansions. There's a lot of different, different angles you can take. James Tiptree wrote, of course, a famous story, Houston, Houston, Do You Read Me?, about these people some women astronauts coming back and they finding there aren't any men left at all. And uh, in principle, you could get by with one gender if you, you know, just learned how to do a little bit of, a little bit of cloning work. It wouldn't be that hard to, uh, to get by with one gender. In the, they call those worlds wows, by the way, women only worlds, wows. <laughs> Thank you for being a brilliant pervert. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with uh, the work of uh, Ian Banks, uh -huh. the Scottish uh, author? Uh, and he wrote this uh, culture cycle where he's pretty much talking about the uh, anarcho-socialist future of hedonism uh, mm -hmm. that's in a certain way in all the books struggling with different... Uh, problems that come from the outside mm -hmm. uh, and he's, he's quite clever when he's talking about sex and, and, and uh, uh, gender and he's, he's a, a leftist political author so he's packing a lot of political theory actually into mm -hmm. his novels and I find it especially interesting when he's talking about um, 
the thing that you, you just mentioned that just a little bit of cloning would probably uh, help a lot. And he, of course, in his uh, uh, utopia of hedonism, uh, all the people of this so-called culture pretty much change uh, their gender all the time. So mm -hmm. for five years they are male, for five years they are female. It's uh, you you should get a child. You're having like a total amount of life. Of like like pretty much infinity, so there will be some way to give a child give birth to a child or not. I mean, uh, are you familiar with this work? I would be interested in what you think about it. Well, that's there. There is a there is a persistent science fiction theme of people uh, readily changing their gender, and uh, Ursula Le Guin wrote about it too, where it might it could be something that periodically changed, or you can do it at will and. Certainly, I mean, living in San Francisco, people changing their gender, it doesn't seem that unusual or strange. Uh, it's part of it, again, is uh, I always have this feeling that science fiction is, is sort of standing somehow for, for things that we do ordinarily, simply to imagine how somebody from the other sex feels about something is a sort of mild form of changing your gender. It's not a behavior that comes naturally. It's not something that teenagers can do, generally speaking. It's uh, as you mature and are, you know, jostled around by society and by encounters with people, you, you develop some ability to see how the opposite sex uh, feels about things and thinks. Um, you can, I mean, if you get into body modifications too, there's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, interesting things you can explore, but it's uh, it's still just an orgasm. Um, so, I recently read uh, Fledgling by Octavia Butler. Uh, Octavia Butler's Fledgling? Yeah. Are you familiar I, with that? I don't know that book of hers, no. So, um, I guess it's a vampire book, uh, but it's it's kind of about symbiotic relationships, so the vampires have this like close symbiotic relationship with the humans they need, and they live in like little groups of like five or eight people. Mm -hmm. So they have this uh, sort of, it's kind of like vampire polyamory or something. Um, that's really interesting. So thinking along the lines of that other question, uh, if you might respond to how we might imagine or how sci-fi might imagine not, instead of just telepathy between two people, like what about you know, imagining new structures for relationships. What about telepathy between ten people? Sex between all of us in this room. <laughs> that's a uh, well. That's another uh, traditional theme. I mean, there's a couple of things like vampires. There's no end of stories about vampires. That's somehow you always have to wonder when when you see book after book about something like UFOs or vampires. What is it about this thing that that so taps people's imagination? I mean, the Greeks had, you know, their gods and so on, or, and we have uh, the things that we're obsessed with, and vampires is one of them. And uh, what, what, is vamp what is that all about, the vampire thing? Um, it's partly, it's, it's some kind of really close contact and uh, absorbing part of the other person, physically eating part of them, uh, becoming enthralled, uh, and the group sex thing, that's, that's another, uh, there's been science fiction novels where you would have 
three or, or five or seven sexes, and you would need that many people to get together. And um, again, you, you could imagine groups where you would have uh, certain kind of roles that people would play in a group sex situation. And they might take turns with the different roles. You know, I, I'm going to be the sweeper, and uh, <laughs> you can be the post, and I'll be the cannonball, and uh, whatever. And uh, it's, I mean, it can be fun to think about these things. It's, uh, sort of, it can be sort of a turn-on. Whether everybody in this room could have sex, uh, I don't know. I guess we could all take our clothes off right now, maybe. That might be kind of interesting. I was threatening to give this talk naked, but it is being videoed, I understand. So that video would be around for a long time. <laughs> I think maybe I'm not going to do that. Hi. Um, so I would guess in 10 to 20 years, people or organizations or corporations will be able to make robotic sex partners that most likely you'll be able to morph that into whatever kind of organism or combination of organisms or animals or creatures that you would want. And these, um, these machines would probably eventually be able to pass as human or some kind of mutant that could accompany you in your day-to-day -day life. And curious, does all that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, historically, if you look at technology, one of the first uses that people put any new technology to is pornography. I mean, the photography, the Internet, tape recording, movies, videos. Usually the first thing that people want to record is other people fucking. And it's, it sort of gets swept under the rug. You, you tend to not hear that much about that, but that's really a driving thing in technology. And it could be that the desire for uh, love dolls would be the thing that might finally push robotics uh, forward. There are some very nice looking love dolls. There's a site, I had some demented fan who was always writing stories about people making sex, having sex with dolls, and there's this site called livedoll.com. And the, there's these really good looking these aren't just your inflatable uh, Pamela Anderson type dolls. These are really, really well made, you know, lots of joints. I mean, they cost like 5,000 bucks, you know, like totally. But they don't do much. I mean, they just, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they just vibrate. Uh, getting them to walk around. Uh, and then, I don't know, do you want a robot dog that you can fuck? I mean, it's easier just to fuck your dog. I mean, <laughs> why? Why get a robot? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, I would think. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, I would think, and you know, uh, whatever. Some people are lonely, or they don't find that partner, and yeah. so, uh, so they would buy a partner, and yes. maybe they want that partner to be part vampire, dragon, human. And yeah. how would society, how would our society accept that? Or, because uh, people are going to want to roll with their partner, I, I, right? I can I see it becoming, I mean, you do see people that, you know, they'll carry their little Pomeranian around in a shoulder carrier. And then, I mean, you could have this, 
somebody that, that I don't know, some, some larger figure that would walk around with you and you'd say, well, that's, that's my toy and I bring him everywhere. And, uh, yeah, of course I fuck him. Yeah. You don't think there's anything wrong with that, do you? Well, no, no, not really. Why, why should there be? I mean, sometimes people, if they're single, they'll just get a long pillow so they at least have something in the bed next to them. But, I mean, clearly there's, there's a lot of improvement to go from a long cylindrical pillow. You know, you have something that has genitals and walks and talks. And I mean, that's, there will be, I mean, robotic partners. Though, um, and some people are unable to find a human partner. So why shouldn't they have a robot partner? I mean, a lot of people like that do have pets now, but uh, in some ways, at this point, a pet is still more entertaining than a robot because they're more, their behavior is more chaotic and more responsive. So it's it's still a long way to go, but uh, I could yeah I could see that happening. There might be a good story in that. So um, you mentioned that one of the drawbacks of, of sex with machines is that they don't have skin and scent and breath, but um, those things don't really play a factor in, in the telepathic in intimacy you were discussing either. I'm just wondering. Well, when I'm talking about the scenes where you're having telepathic sex, it's also, I'm seeing, viewing that in a context where it's face-to-face -face sex, so it's like adding more. It's like, you know, layering on icing and the sprinkles and the candles and the, you know, as much as possible. So if you just had the telepathy without being there face to face, uh, one, I mean, one way we imagine telepathy is that it would be across the full sensory spectrum. So maybe if you, and then maybe remote sex could become a little more satisfying. If you could have some remote contact where you were getting the, the sense of skin touch and, and the smells and so on, and it could maybe maybe be a, a useful thing. Um, I've been struck by uh, how often sort of in modern society we see ways to sort of trick our natural reward systems and then it turns out we're not so smart to have done that. You know, it's like people chew coca leaves harmlessly for thousands of years and then you concentrate it into cocaine and then all of a sudden you've got trouble. Or, you know, it's hard to eat so much fruit that you're really like, you make yourself sick and your teeth fall out and you get diabetes, but it's pretty easy to do that with sugar. And uh, I wonder about various aspects of sort of amplification of sexuality. Can we amplify it enough that we make it really bad for us? Uh, and then how would society respond to that? You know, can, can we see internet porn that's so addictive, so obsessive that like real women just can't compete with it at all, or real men? Uh, do we see uh, orgasm enhancing drugs that make it so irresistible that you just can't stop? Uh, and then how did society respond to that when it happened? It is surprising how many ads for sex drugs you see on TV now. There's one, I've been watching TV recently because I'm interested in the election. I don't usually watch TV very much. But there's all these ads for Levitra, where it's this, this guy and his wife, and they're sitting by a fire. And he's got this really big nose. <laughs> it's, like, it's not all that subtle, you know. But, uh, and if, 
I mean, if you if you take too much of it, you know, you can get a condition called priapism where your erection doesn't go down, and uh, that's you know, at some point it becomes painful. And uh, certainly, internet porn. I mean, you, you'll you'll sometimes read about people. You know, they they get they have to be like you have to sort of pry them off their computer. They're like they can't even move anymore. They're they're in this rictus, they're, and they're they've got carpal tunnel. They're they've been clicking so much, and they're just sort of stuck in this room, and they can't go outside. Uh, we, I mean, that's one of the human race's lovable tendencies that we tend to overdo. I mean, if something's good, then there's always this tendency to want to do it way too much. And uh, some people, you know, they, they get sucked in, they fall by the wayside. Uh, so uh, what does society do about that? Well, uh, usually they punish the wrong people. That's usually what they do about it. Uh, punish computer programmers or artists or cut the budget for art, whatever. So it, there's not, there's sort of, there's sort of nothing much the government can do in a general way to stop people from doing stupid, harmful things. Uh, that's kind of, that's sort of a self-limiting process in the end. I mean, you're trying with smoking, I guess. Yeah, smoking, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, they discourage smoking, and uh, smoking's very addictive. It's very, very hard to quit smoking. Okay. Um, science fiction, some of the science fiction you were talking about is uh, sort of science fact. Certainly there are lots of people walking around with flashlights, um, and I know that there are both men and women who are walking around the United States today with electro-stim toys and having orgasms as they walk down the street, um, sometimes induced by cell phones or other forms of devices. So a lot of what you're talking about is here somewhat for people experimentally. Mm -hmm. um, so your cell phone, your girlfriend, it, it rings the joy buzzer and she has an orgasm? Yeah, it's, it's a TINS unit that causes... I guess I've heard of that. Yeah. It's, I mean, I mostly hang around with professors, so. <laughs> and that, then there are probably 30 different models of commercial fucking machines out there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And at least a half a dozen reasonable sucking machines. Sure. And so, you know, yeah. it's not so hard to see that constructed. You mentioned the sex dolls. The thing I loved about that story was that that company had to respond to customer pressure and brought out a male sex doll. Uh-huh. And it was the women who wanted it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, the live doll, the male version. There's a funny scene in, uh, there's a new Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading This, or Burn After Reading. And there's, it's set in the 50s, and there's this guy, I think he's played by George Clooney, and he's building this fucking machine for his wife. <laughs> and then she finds out that he's having an affair. And so she takes an axe to the fucking machine. Or, no, or he finds out she's having an affair with somebody else. And he bitterly, sadly, with tears coming from his eyes, is chopping up the, the fucking machine. And there's this pathetic uh, bright pink dildo. It's sort of darting up and out of this thing while he's chopping it with the axe. This sort of the ever hopeful 
ever hopeful uh, male element there. You, uh, you made a comparison between uh, robots and uh, non-human animals, and I'm wondering from a moral perspective and from a social, maybe an ethical perspective, do you think that robots are uh, ever going to achieve a point where they are thought of as having intrinsic moral rights, or is there always a gap between something that's created from thin air and something that's born? And if so, would you place non-humans in the same category as not having moral rights, or how do you address, you, you sort of referred to pets as entertaining, and it, it kind of made it seem like more they're sort of a, a, a pastime or something fun rather than individuals. Well, yeah, at present certainly animals are sort of higher on the chain of, of lifelikeness than any, any robots that we've built so far. And, uh, but I think we will have human-like robots, and at that time we would be inclined to give them give them rights. I think it won't happen as fast as people have sometimes imagined it would happen. I think I think we're looking at a hundred years, two hundred years before we get anything that's reasonably good and convincing artificial intelligence. It's there was initially. I used to teach artificial intelligence uh, uh, classes in it. And I, before I actually taught the subject, I imagined that it was a lot more advanced than it is. And it's really just sort of a bag of tricks at this point. There isn't much of an underlying really good theory. I mean, there's some ideas about how we might go about a good theory. Um, but it seems like there's still something kind of missing. And I, I don't see it coming together. Though you never know. Sometimes there's a breakthrough and things come together very rapidly all at once. But at the pace we're going now, I, I see it as taking another couple of hundred years. But uh, certainly, I mean, when the day comes that you can't really, t if you're talking to somebody over the phone or you can't tell if you're talking to a person or a computer, you know, you talk to them for quite some time. And then, and the, the thing says, well, I like being alive. You know, I don't want to die. I mean, at that point, you're getting to the point where you would say that you would really have a moral compunction not to go in there and, you know, chop it up with an axe. Mm -hmm. I was going to say the Solaris question, referencing the old Tartowski movie, Solaris, from yeah, the, uh, Stanislaw yeah. Lem's novel, that fundamental question of what does it mean to be alive. Right, right. Yeah, at this point, I don't feel guilty when I turn off my computer in the evening. <laughs> but the, the day might come when you do. Uh, there's this uh, book from uh, David Levy. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but uh, uh, Love and Sex with Robots. And uh, his uh, projection, op I think, over-optimistically, is that uh, we'll have uh, people marrying robots uh, by 2050. Uh, but, you know, one of the things he kind of pushes aside, uh, introduces it briefly, uh, and then pushes it aside is, uh, you know, what happens when they get self-awareness, are they then due, uh, you know, respect, uh, or rights or whatever, uh, to be recognized by the human, po human population. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, uh, the, the, uh, possibility of Genesis 2 or uh, 
transition over to the Cylons, uh, you know, revolt, revolting against human masters and other such uh, stories with that. But uh, the Levy book is certainly a good reference for uh, people wanting some factual information uh, uh, yeah, in the background for their stories. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, Stephen Levy's he's a very good writer. Uh, he actually is a staff writer at Wired now, I think. And he, he quotes, I hate science fiction. He, he might have said that. I don't know. I've met him a few times, and he never said that to me. <laughs> but I, I'm bigger than he is. So I don't know. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Levy, Levy's a fascinating guy. And love and sex with robots. Though, why would you marry a robot? I mean, you're just setting yourself up for alimony. I mean, you have to keep up its electrical bill. I mean, and what leverage does the robot have over you to make you marry it? I don't know. <laughs> and actually, I have to add that there uh, just recently um, a woman from Germany married uh, the remainings of the Berlin Wall. So, I mean, you can pretty much marry whatever you like. What uh, did she marry? It doesn't necessarily... The Berlin Wall. Oh, the Berlin like Wall. The remainings pretty of much course. of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. There was a pretty interesting article about object sex. Uh -huh. net, not object sex in the way of like that someone fetishizes an object. Uh-huh real object sex and it was uh, quite fascinating and one example was this woman from uh, I don't know I guess from Kassler or what Norway Norway okay Karen Harrison knows it from Norway who married the Berlin Wall okay good maybe you have some insights about that Karen okay. later are you you'll be talking okay good good later okay well that's uh, I think at this point we've reached the limit of my area of competence so <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. So big applause for Rudy Rucker.